What has Asia ever done for us? Part four, towards the modern world. In 1589, the Elizabethan collector and publisher of travel accounts, Richard Hacklett, made a very bold claim. The English, he wrote, are men full of activity, stirrers abroad and searchers of the remote parts of the world. It was a bold claim because there was precious little evidence for it. Travel literature in English, as Hacklett knew only too well, consisted overwhelmingly of translations from Italian, Portuguese and Spanish parts of Europe that really were responsible for stirring things up abroad, for better and for worse. Across the 1500s and 1600s, most Englishmen saw better prospects to their west, in North America, than they did to the east, in Asia. A handful of Englishmen journeyed to Mughal India in the late 1500s and early 1600s to see whether they might chip away at Portuguese influence there and, in the process, top up their coffers or enhance their reputation back home. But it wasn't until the 18th century that the East India Company began to engage in the sort of activity that would have made Richard Hacklett proud. The East India Company, EIC, was founded in 1600 as a means for Englishmen to muscle in on the Asian trade. Its first century of life was relatively unremarkable. Representatives sent to the court of the Mughal emperors were humoured more than they were respected, and most returned to England having fallen far short of the sort of trade deals craved by their bosses in London. It was only when the Mughal Empire began to fall apart in the early 1700s that the EIC got the chance to expand its influence. Fortified trading stations had already been established at Madras in 1639, Bombay 1668 and Calcutta 1690. But now a combination of deal-making and war-making began to bring ever larger parts of the subcontinent under East India Company control. Most valuable of all was the territory of Bengal in eastern India. The EIC won control of it at the Battle of Plassey in 1757, and senior company men like Robert Clive set about extracting land revenue and other forms of wealth besides, sending boats laden with looted treasure bobbing down the Hooghly River. Such were the sums of money soon being made by the likes of Clive and the corrupt means of doing so, which contributed to famine in Bengal in 1770, that Parliament was forced to change the terms of the EIC presence in India. A post of Governor-General was created in 1773 and a Supreme Court followed soon afterwards. Aspiring now not just to trade or collect taxes in India, but actually to rule, the English began to explore Indian justice for the first time. In doing so, they encountered some of the country's sacred texts. Prime amongst these were the four Vedas, knowledge in Sanskrit, the earliest of which dated back to around 1500 BCE. Spiritual commentaries appearing at the end of these Vedas were called Upanishads. This was a Sanskrit word comprising upa, near, ni, down, and shad, sit, giving the sense of sitting down near a spiritual teacher to receive wisdom. 
Some of these Upanishads were perhaps being composed when Alexander the Great's armies stormed into India, back in the 320s BCE. Various schools of philosophy were discovered too, alongside epic stories of gods and men. Two of the greatest had been put together between 300 BCE and 300 CE. The Ramayana, Rama's journey, told the story of the deity Rama, including the kidnapping and rescue of his wife, Sita. The Mahabharata, the great epic of the Bharata dynasty, centred around five brothers, the Pandavas, waging war against other members of their extended family. The best-known section of the Mahabharata was the Bhagavad Gita, the Song of the Lord. One of the Pandava brothers, Arjuna, converses with his charioteer, who turns out to be the deity Krishna. It begins with Arjuna's anxieties about the battles and bloodshed to come, and turns into a philosophical discourse on how to live. English interest in India's religious literature began with the desire to rule the country more effectively. In his prefatory letter to the first English translation of the Bhagavad Gita, Governor-General Warren Hastings praised its content, comparing it with the Iliad, while noting that every accumulation of knowledge is useful to the state. For some, however, including the poet and lawyer William Jones, pragmatism turned to affection and respect. While serving as a judge on Calcutta's Supreme Court, Jones studied Sanskrit, translated religious texts and wrote hymns to Indian deities as a way of sharing Indian wisdom with audiences back home. Delusive pictures, unsubstantial shows, my soul absorbed one only being knows. Of all perceptions, one abundant source, whence every object, every moment flows. Suns hence derive their force, hence planets learn their course. But suns and fading worlds I view no more. God only I perceive. God only I adore. From William Jones's Hymn to Narayana, 1785. The influence of Indian literature in Europe was profound, especially when communicated by people with Jones's talent for presentation. For much of the 18th century, Chinese arts and fabrics had been in great demand. Thinkers like Voltaire had found in China's political system much to admire. It was controlled day to day by educated, secular men, people much like himself in fact. But as China's star waned in the late 1700s, Europeans increasingly turned to what they regarded as the purity and contemplative depth of Indian wisdom. Goethe was a fan, and so too Samuel Taylor Coleridge. Both men were drawn in particular to the Advaita Vedanta philosophy of Shankara, 8th century, which spoke of the everyday world as maya, illusion, veiling a glorious reality beyond. Later in the 19th century, parts of the West passed through a Buddhism boom, inspired in no small part by another poet, Edwin Arnold, whose account in verse of the Buddha's life, the light of Asia, was drafted on restaurant menus, shirt cuffs and anything else that came to hand. When finally published as an actual book in 1879, it proved popular enough to persuade worried Christians to pen book-length rebuttals. 
As with Jones and Indian philosophy, or Hindu philosophy, the word was a colonial creation, Arnold was drawn to what he regarded as the purity, psychological good sense and idealism of the Buddha's teachings. Where Western critics of Buddhism regarded it as nihilistic, seeking not the salvation but the extinction of the self, Arnold depicted the moment of the Buddha's enlightenment as one of blessed relief. Never shall yearnings torture him, nor sins stain him, nor ache of earthly joys and woes invade his safe eternal peace, nor deaths and lives recur. He goes unto nirvana. He is one with life, yet lives not. He is blessed, ceasing to be. Om Mani Padme Om. The dewdrop slips into the shining sea. Arnold remained a Christian all his life, and Samuel Taylor Coleridge eventually chose Christianity over Indian idealism, regarding the latter with bitter disappointment as a painted atheism. But Asian religion and philosophy were increasingly recognised across much of the West as sophisticated, plausible, and even, to some, compelling. As more and more Westerners began to question Christianity, thanks in part to new scientific and archaeological discoveries, which threatened to undermine key tenets of the faith, the attractions grew of Buddhism in particular. From the late 19th century onwards, advocates for Vedanta and Buddhism, Asian and Western alike, presented them as ideal answers to tired, disenchanted modern minds relatively light on complex historical or cosmic claims, and focused instead on helping people to flourish in the world, ethically, psychologically, spiritually. The stage was set for some of the great spiritual odysseys of the 20th century.